welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome along, everybody. Another Thursday, another week in the books, and here we are. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bro Novo Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Thomas Pierce. And thank you for choosing to spend the next hour with me and my guest. My guest this week is Terry Tucker. Terry is a retired SWAT team negotiator who has a lifelong passion for basketball. He was a college basketball player and a high school basketball coach. And starting in 2012 and continuing to this day, Terry has been battling cancer. He had a rare form of melanoma in his foot that eventually cost him his leg that was amputated and has since had a new diagnosis of cancer elsewhere in his body. And now Terry's passion, using his experience and what he's overcome mentally and physically through battling cancer, is to inspire others to lead uncommon and extraordinary lives. And we dive deep on Terry's life experiences and the principles that guide him and that he believes can help guide other people. Big thank you to Terry for coming on the program, and we wish him all the best in his continuing battle against cancer he had a lot of interesting things to say, and I think you'll enjoy the episode. Thanks for being along for the ride. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. We're off to the races. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm great, Thomas. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. So you're calling in from Colorado, correct? Correct. Denver. Denver. Nice. I love Colorado. My stepbrother lives there, and it's a, it's a super fun place to visit. And uh, yeah, might might live there in the future, I think. It's kind of on the roadmap. You know, it really is. My wife and I have lived all over the United States. I mean, East Coast, West Coast. We moved here from Houston, so the Gulf Coast. And in all honesty, I mean, we both grew up in the Midwest. I'll take the mountains any day of the week uh, over the ocean. It's just just a beautiful place. Yeah, for sure. We have that uh, commonality, too. So I I was actually born in Cincinnati, Um, the Ohio Connection. I know that you you grew up in Columbus area. Correct. Yeah, and I was also a policeman in Cincinnati. So Cincinnati, yeah, yeah. So we we definitely have that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, my parents from Toledo, and then we moved to Philly, and then I moved out here to the Bay, the California after that. But but yeah, you referenced uh, Southern California too a few times in in your in your book. We should probably mention that as well. Um, so your um, your book, your memoir you wrote uh, after you know kind of went through a couple careers, uh, college basketball player, working in law enforcement, and then also in uh, kind of corporate marketing. And then you went, you know, you had these uh, pretty extraordinary medical challenges that, and through that journey, you wrote this book. So I guess, you know, what was the, the motivation to write the book? What was it that you felt about your experiences had, had value that you wanted to kind of share with others? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, the, the book is really born out of two conversations that I had. One, I, I used to be a, a girls' high school basketball coach when I lived in Texas. And uh, I had a player that had moved to the Colorado area where my wife and I live now with, with her fiance. And we had dinner with him one night. And I said to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about, finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth 
and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then another conversation was with a young man uh, on uh, social media who reached out to me and asked me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others kind of stuff. Not that those aren't important. They are. They're incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with them. So I took some time and I wrote some notes. And eventually I had these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three-month period, uh, as you mentioned, about battling cancer, I had my leg amputated in 2000, April of 2020, and I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs in, junior, in June of 2020. And during that three-month period, while I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day, and I developed stories. I wrote stories underneath those principles, and that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Nice. Wow, man. I, I didn't realize how recent the diagnosis was. Well, the diagnosis initially was 2012. So it's been 10 years since I've been doing this. And I was on was on an ugly drug after I had surgery at MD Anderson in, in Houston for the tumor in my, started out in my foot. And it's a rare form of melanoma. And after I healed, I was put on this weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And basically what interferon gave me was severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So if you can imagine having the flu every week for five years, and that wasn't a cure. That was just to try to keep the disease from coming back. 2017, I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. And that was just the toxicity to the drug had a stop interferon. And almost immediately when I stopped it, the disease came back in the exact same place on my foot which led in 2018 to my left foot being amputated. The cancer worked its way up my shin 2019, two more surgeries, and then 2020, the amputation of my leg above my knee and found out I had these tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for now. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the book because I, as I was reading it, I, I really felt that it takes a, tremendous amount of self-awareness and reflection to write that book. And one of the things that the, the kind of motivation behind this podcast was that I feel there's a lack of modeling for men to talk about things like vulnerability or our problems or even things like um, healthy discussion and debate and difference of a perspective and all of those things. It seems like, on, on the modeling side, you know, men are kind of conditioned. And from what I, I mean, I, I uh, also grew up in like a Catholic environment, I would say. Um, and I actually want to talk to you about um, faith because I think that's an interesting topic, especially with, with my generation. Um, but the modeling side and then also the, just the nature of our kind of fractured political identities, you know, the, the whole, the whole idea about healthy discussion and, we can have different perspectives, but still share respect and try to learn something from each other has been kind of lost. So those are the motivations behind why I created this program. And I, I kind of saw all of those items in, in your book. So just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. 
Well, great. Good. I'm glad I, you know, mm-hmm. I think you write a book for, you know, for a lot of reasons, but one is to get people to think, you know, I mean, how, how can I have a better life? How can I do better? We're, we're not perfect and we're not all born with the same gifts and talents, but I really believe we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. Totally. One thing I wanted to ask you about too, is with, with, you know, your, your cancer battle, I've, um, heard people who are carrying a challenge. So say it's a a past traumatic event or a current uh, challenge, like the one you're facing and the idea of not wanting others to um, give, you know, pity or not wanting to feel someone else's kind of emotional reaction to your situation. Right. Cause it's like, and you kind of mentioned it too, with the the whole situation of (laughs) people who ask for what they can do to help rather than just helping. So how has that been for you? Because, you know, as someone who has been, you know, you're very, you have a lot of self-ownership, you really have taken control of your life in many ways, but then to have this outside force come in and then have to kind of socially navigate other people knowing about that outside force, what has that experience been like? Yeah, it's not, it's not easy for me to hide it. You know, I mean, when I, I, I don't have a leg, <laughs> you know, I'm in a wheelchair, so it's not like I can, you know, I can sort of push it under the rug or anything like that. And, and I, I think you've got to have, and this is going to sound kind of weird. I think you got to have fun with it, you know, and, and you've got to, I, I remember I was in the hospital. This was when I had my foot amputated and I, I was in a, I was in a boot and you could sort of tell that I didn't have a foot and I was kind of hobbling out towards the, the exit. And there was a woman standing there and she was just, it was almost like she was staring right through me. I mean, she was staring so hard. And the closer I got to her, I was like, well, you know, I, I got to say something. I can't let this go. I mean, she just and so I, I get literally right to her and I just turn and I look at her. and said, don't worry, it'll grow back. And I kept walking <laughs> and I turned around and I looked at her and she had this look on her face like, well, well maybe it might grow back. I, I don't know. But so, yes, you definitely have, you know, you kind of have to make light of your situation. I mean. You know, I mean, my, I, I always say my brother teases me constantly. He said, you know, you do these podcasts. He said, you have a face for radio. You know, you shouldn't be on these, these <laughs> things with, with this. But, yes, to go back to your point about one of the things that I found was that, and, and I've done this, and, and you very well may have done it. You know, whenever you're somebody's going into the hospital or somebody's having something going on in their lives, you know, uh, somebody's ill and things like that, you, you know, you're like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. And I think that is such a cop out and, and I've done it. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else, but I think that's a cop out. I, I remember when I had my first surgery at MD Anderson, I did not have to spend the night. I was, when I woke up, I was able to go home and I've been home about 15 minutes. My cell phone rang and it was my 95 year old friend. His name was Bud, been in World War II. He said, Terry, I know you just got home from the hospital, but can I come over for 10 minutes? I just want to give you something. I'm like, sure, Bud, come on over. Literally within 15 minutes, here's my 95-year-old friend standing in our living room with a fully cooked chicken and a pan of cream cheese Danish that he had bought at Costco. And he's like, here, you have dinner for tonight and you have breakfast for tomorrow. He didn't stand on the sidelines and pretend he was playing in the game. He actually got involved and got out there and helped us out. So the, the same things that you need to do at your house, you know, the garbage needs to go out, the, the dog needs to be walked, the grass needs to be cut, the, the kids need to go to school, are the same things I have to do at my house, but I don't have time to figure out how you can help me. So don't ask, 
just get involved. Just do something. Even if it's the wrong thing, it'll certainly be appreciated. Totally. And I think that's a that's a wonderful analogy for all areas of life. You know, your friend doesn't need to be battling cancer to <laughs> to do that. Just yeah, get involved. <clears throat> um and so you mentioned the, the 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 game analogy and being an athlete has been a central tenet of your life and it seems your identity from your book. Uh, I can also relate to that. And one of the things I found really interesting was that in your reflections on your, your days playing college ball, you look back and realize that you had a lot of self-limiting beliefs at that point. And I remember you saying that you, you, you played for a coach who really respected and who was a, a, who was good to you, but you actually said that you didn't, you feel you didn't hit your potential at that point in your life because of those, um, kind of anxieties or, you know, the negative self-talk. So can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Because I think there's a lesson there for all of us who may be walking around with that negative self-talk and not even realize it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was incredibly fortunate to get a scholarship to play division one college basketball, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. And, and, and you're right. I, I mean, I was, I was listening to my own chatter, and, and I thought I had overcome that because when I had these surgeries, I remember when I went back playing in high school, my brain was putting these negative thoughts into my mind. It was, you know, things like, hey, you had these surgeries, you're probably a step slower and college coaches aren't going to want to recruit you and things like that. And I was like, no, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still contacting me about playing in, 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 in college. So, you know, I was like, okay, I got to flip that narrative. I got to flip it to something positive. And I thought I had, but I mean, part of it was lack of maturity. I, I, I was I was not ready to go to college. I mean, I you know I was I was a thousand miles from my parents, my family, my girlfriend, everything, and and I was so into into me, you know. And I, I remember literally I was going to quit, I, and I'd never quit anything in my life. But I was like, you know what? With, the Citadel was a military college, so. You know, the first thing they did was shave your head and you're marching and I've got a bad knee and I'm hurting. And, you know, all these things were going on. And I'm like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up this full scholarship to college. But before I do that, I was literally walking over to tell the coaches I was leaving. I decided to stop at the student union and see if I had any mail. And I had a seven page handwritten letter from my father. Father never written me a letter in my life. So I took it, went up to the nosebleed section of the field house and I'm reading it. And he's telling me, you know, I'm so proud of you. I love you. You've done a great job of overcoming these knee surgeries. And then he kind of kind of hits me with, but you need to pull your head out of your butt because basically you are focused totally on yourself. He said, you've called home, I don't know how many, five, seven times since you've been down there. And not once have you asked how anybody at home is doing. You're totally focused on yourself. Get out of your head, get out of your way and, and you know, and and do this. You can do this. So it was honestly, Thomas, the first time in my life when I felt I I was going to make a life choice that was going to affect the rest of my life. Here I am sitting in the nosebleed section. I'm like, okay, the coach's office is 50 feet away. I got to walk down there and quit. Or I've got this letter from my dad saying, I can do this. You, you can do this if you want to. It's up to you. And so I had a choice. And, it, and like I said, it was the first time in my life that I ever felt like, well, I've got to make this. Nobody's going to make it for me. You know, mom and dad aren't here. I've got to do this for myself. What am I going to do? And I mean, I'm literally, I'm crying. I got tears running down my eyes and stuff like that. And I'm like, 
okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the barracks. I'm going to do, I'm going to give it a shot. And, and I did. And I, I, I got through the Citadel experience. I, you know, I graduated in four years, barely, uh, not with the greatest grade point average, but you know, I did those things and, you know, it's all how you want to look at it. And, and, and like part of it is just growing up, you know, and you realize I wasn't much, I'm 18 years old. I mean, how many 18 year old kids know what they want to do with their lives and, you know, are mature enough to do all this kind of stuff. I wasn't I, I plain and simple. I just wasn't, but I figured out a way to do it. So I guess I would say kind of a long winded answer is just keep going, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and trying. because if you do that, I can promise you, eventually you'll get there because I've always believed everything you need to be successful in life is already inside you. You just need to find it, pull it out and use it to your benefit. Totally. And one of the most repeated phrases is an uncommon and extraordinary life. And that's, it seems to be like your mantra almost or your, what you put out to people and and give them the belief that they can, everything they need is already there. And one of the things I like too from one of your one of the of the ten uh, points from the book was that you know rather than kind of it's it's almost like very like uh, Zen. It's like rather than searching for the person you're meant to be, accept that you already are that person. You yeah. know, could you elaborate on that one? I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, and and I love this because it, you know as the the ten principle each chapter is a principle. Uh, or each principle is a chapter, I should say. And and I find that when people reach out to me, it's like, hey, I read your book. There's always one principle that resonates with the reader. And and the principles aren't in any order. You know, number one isn't more important than number seven or anything like that. But the one that resonates with me, you know, I, and I'm the same way. And I, and I wrote all 10 of them was, you know, most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. But the one you cite is, you know, is about, you know, even, even though you're not the person you're looking to be yet, you you already are. I mean, that person, you know, even if I felt my passion was to be in law enforcement, but my first two jobs were in business, I was still a cop at heart, for lack of a better word. You know, I just hasn't hadn't gotten there yet. So, you know, I think there's I think it's important. And it's kind of like what I told my player uh, when I told you the story about, you know, the two stories about the book, about why I wrote the book, was you you need to find your purpose in life. And I think we were all put here for a reason. And, it, you know, my reason is not your reason. And your reason is not your mother's reason and things like that. We all have our own journey to go down. But so many people, you know, get sort of down the path and then quit. And 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 life makes it so easy when we, you know, we're, we're here, okay, I'm going towards my goals. Oh, wait a minute. There's an impediment here. Something, something got in front of me. Something got in my way. And what do we do? We quit. And then when we quit, what do we, what do we do? We want to blame somebody. Most people won't take responsibility for their own success and happiness. They won't say, you know what? Yeah, I blew that. Or wait a minute, I blew it, but I learned something and I can do something over here. They just take that and they're like, oh, I blew it. Now, who am I going to blame? I'm going to blame my father and mother. I'm going to blame my coach. I'm going to blame my my boss or my station in life. And I've had people say to me, who do you blame because you got cancer? I'm like, what do you mean, who do I blame? What kind of question is that? It is. It's like, what do you mean, who do I blame? <laughs> well, you, you got to blame somebody. And I'm like, well, who do I blame? Because I've had all 88 genes that doctors either know or suspect 
cause all forms of cancer. I've had, I've had all kinds of genetic testing. I have no mutations in any of my genes. So it's like, well, I can't blame my parents. They didn't give it to me. And then they go to the next step. It's like, well, do you blame God? And I, I'm always like, well, wait a minute. No, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer. You know, I, I don't think that happened at all. So I don't blame anybody. And, and I wish people would stop blaming or looking for somebody to blame and spend more time like, you know what? I need to take responsibility for my success and happiness and for what I want to be in life and, and not stop. Well, I couldn't do that because somebody did this to me or I didn't have the money or find a way. The, the world owes you absolutely nothing. And I got news for you. You're unique, but you're not special. So find out what you want. Figure out how you're going to get it and then go after it with dogged determination. And you just might get lucky enough to get it because so many people stop. So many people quit. So if you have just this much of grit with inside you and you do, use that grit to find what you want. For sure. It takes a lot of hard work and dedication and accomplishments, I would say, to be special. You know, like that's a great distinction because... Of course, we're all unique and we have wonderful attributes, but yeah, the, the people who rise to the top as far as it, whether it's, you know, being very famous and well-known for success or just within their field or just within their small group for having excellent morals or excellent uh, work ethic or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's a interesting distinction. So, yeah, so your, your grandfather was a, a policeman in Chicago and your dad didn't want you to be in law enforcement, but you felt that that was your calling from a, from a young age. And I'm curious to hear too, cause you know, the last couple of years, it's been a renewed discussion around law enforcement, right? You know, a uh, stricter scrutiny around use of force. And as this discussion of the history and legacy of things like uh, uh, Jim Crow and these kinds of like institutionalized discrimination and racism, you know, how has that conversation affected you? You know, how have you kind of engaged with that? Because I would imagine, you know, it must be an interesting one because it's one, you know, your career that you put so much time into and also something that you identify with. So how have you kind of approached that, that discussion? I usually ask people to think of it in this way. Um, if, if your job was this, if your job made less money than a plumber, if every time you went to work, Nobody wanted you there. And then when you were at work, everybody lied to you. How long would you do that job? How long would you stay in that field? Because if you think about it, that's what a police officer does. We make less money than a plumber. You know, nobody wants us there. It's never a good thing, whether we're pulling over you, you're pulling you over to give a ticket or responding on a radio run for a fight or we're, you know, knocking on your door to say, call the hospital because grandma just died. Nobody wants you there. Everybody loves a fireman. Everybody hates a cop. And then finally, everybody lies to you. You know, everybody's trying to put their story as the one you believe so that you'll take the other person to jail. So that's that's your job. That's that's what you do every day, every night when you go to work. And I don't think most people would say, you know what? Yeah, I can't wait to go to work. I can't wait to do this. And I think you have to have an altruistic belief that, you, that you know what? I'm going to try to make a difference in my community. I want to help other individuals. That's why you do that job. I mean, I used to talk to the, the uh, academy kids when they, were in the, when they were in the police academy. And I used to tell them, you know, 
they're going to spend six months here in the academy teaching you how to use all these tools in your belt. And that's great. But the biggest tools that you bring to this job are this and this. You can, by what you say, you can turn a yes person into a no person and you can turn a no person into a yes person. And I think our biggest fault in law enforcement is lack of communication. I I, I mean, my partner and I patrolled an entirely black neighborhood for four and a half years. And we led our relief in almost every category, felony arrest, guns recovered, dope recovered, you know, wanted people, whatever you want to say. And we never got complained on. And I think the reason was, one, we were older and we had some life experience. And two, we explained things to people. You know, if I pull you over at two o'clock in the morning, you know, in a Ford Bronco, and you're like, why did you pull me over? It's like, well, sir, you know, somebody just committed a crime in a vehicle that matches this description. You are not that person. Thank you very much for your cooperation. People understand that. It's like, you just didn't pull me over for the heck of it. You pulled me over for a specific reason. But I have seen police officers who have done exactly that. And the person's like, hey, why did you pull me over? Just get out of here. I, I don't need to tell you. You're right. You don't need to tell them. But boy, will it make life easier on all of us if you do tell them? Yeah. So why can't we communicate? One of the things that I learned, I was a um, hostage negotiator on the Cincinnati Police Department SWAT team. And if you think about it, what we do as police officers, 99.9% of it is face-to-face with people. But as negotiators, we weren't face-to-face. We were. We could be blocks away. We could be you know, on the other side of a, blo- of a blocked door, a locked door, whatever it was. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And there were several times where we'd be over here spending two hours talking to a person who was barricaded when the real problem was over here and we hadn't even gotten to it. And you mentioned this earlier, and I guess I wanted to pick up on that. We, you know, the the importance of listening is something you mentioned. And, And there are two types of listening. There's listening to respond. And there's listening to understand. And, you know, we are all guilty of, you know, hurry up, Thomas, say what you're going to say, because I want to get my two cents in here versus, oh, Thomas, I understand you say that. I may not agree with you or I may agree with you. But why do you say that? Where are you coming from regarding what you're saying? That's a dialogue. That's a discussion. I can learn from you. You can learn from me. But us screaming at each other, I don't hear what you're saying. You don't hear what I'm saying. And that's kind of where we are right now in society. And unfortunately, that's kind of a shame. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, man. The I think for me, the like the relationship with law enforcement is interesting because <clears throat> the yeah, the communication piece is, is essential, right? Because to me, I, I think that power corrupts. And I think it takes someone of an extraordinary moral code to look at that job and think that they have the constitution to, to perform it. Right. And, and I, I, I do think also like these highly publicized events are probably one in a thousand or, you know, all of the positive events like you referenced, like building relationships with the community, those things are not seen every day. Those don't make news because they're nothing happens. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's interesting, and um, the one thing I guess too that I'd be curious to hear your perspective on is whenever there are these incidents of someone dies, right, and there's an investigation, 
the thing that doesn't make sense to me is that these um, law enforcement agencies in, uh, investigate themselves, right? They do an internal review. And then to me, I'm, I'm always kind of confused. Why is that the procedure? Why, why is the agency uh, investigating itself? Because we don't, we don't let, you know, if, if we don't let a kid investigate uh, their own misdeeds and then tell their parents, you know, what the result is. Right. And this is from an outsider's perspective. So that, that's why I ask, ask as well. And the other thing too, that I'd be curious to get your perspective on is this, this concept of the uh, thin blue line has kind of been publicized, right? As far as police officers, not um, it, informing, maybe it's not the right word, but kind of uh, protecting each other and, and not speaking out against a, a, a partner or a fellow fellow officer. And that's something that's received a lot of scrutiny too. So yeah, those two things I'd be curious to hear your, your perspective. Yeah. yeah I, I guess part of why we investigate ourselves is, I guess, I guess, let me try to put it this way. If, if you were, you know, an engineer and you built a bridge and that bridge fell down, w- would you go get a baker to come in and say, Hey, why did that bridge fall down? You know, you're, you're a bad engineer. Well, maybe it wasn't, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe it was the way the steel was made or, you know, it was an inferior rivet or, you know, the, it wasn't, put correctly. So you wouldn't bring a baker in to say, you know, I'm going to examine this bridge. So we, I I remember one time I was, I was working in the drug unit and we we had a citizens police oversight committee who none of them were cops, but they were, you know, they could make, you know, make you testify. They could get evidence. They could do all this kind of stuff. And then they would go out in the media and say, this officer was wrong. And I remember I was I was offered the opportunity and, and I wish I would have done this. I didn't do it. I was I was recommended that I not do it. But they said, hey, you you deployed your taser on this individual and we don't think it was right. And so we're going to basically sanction you. They had no real authority to do anything, but we're going to sanction you because you did that. And I'm like, OK, well, here was the situation. This was a felony drug suspect who had just sold crack cocaine to one of our undercover officers. He ran. I chased him. I deployed my taser after telling him to stop. Because if you look at our use of force continuum, it was, here's how I was trained. It was officer's presence. Well, obviously, you know, I was a cop. I had my badge on. I was yelling police. And then it was verbal commands. Stop, you know, stop running. You know, I was chasing him and I was yelling that. And then the next one was taser. That's That was the next use of force continuum on the scale. And so I deployed my taser. I didn't hit him. He, he juked when I was about ready to hit him. I hit a bush with my taser. So I didn't even, I didn't even tase him. But I was going to be sanctioned because they didn't think that was appropriate. So you can't train me to do something. You can't, you know, and all law enforcement agencies are governed by a state you know, Ohio, it's OPATA, the Ohio Police Officers Training Association. And they set the criteria. They say, you know, when you go to the range, you have to hit seven out of 10 shots. When you, so they set the criteria for all our training. And so when you train me a certain way and then you criticize me and say, no, you shouldn't have done that. Wait a minute. I, I mean, it would be like you, you know, training you to be a doctor to perform surgery on taking an appendix out a certain way. 
And then somebody says, oh, you, you took it out the way you were trained. No, 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 sorry, that's wrong. You, you're in the wrong. You're a bad doctor. So when you look at it, that's a, that's a reason why we investigate ourselves. Now, do I think the Cincinnati Police Department should should have an investigation? Sure, they should. Did did we do everything we could do? You know, the way we were we were supposed to do it, the way we were trained. And then there should be, you know, maybe the county comes in and says, "Okay, I will investigate this sort of in a dual track, in a parallel track." But here's the, the other thing I I, I want to say about that: you're asking us to do things that you don't want to do that you don't want to see. You don't, you don't want to see the ugly side of life. And, and sometimes we need to use force. And do we like to use force? No, because there's a lot of paperwork. You know, I, I mean, people are like, you know, a white guy went out and shot a black guy. I can promise you, nobody gets up in the morning and says, I think I'm going to go shoot a black guy today. I, I mean, shooting anybody and especially killing them ruins the rest of your life. Totally ruins the rest of your life. I had a very a classmate in the academy who shot and killed somebody in Cincinnati in 2001. Nobody remembers how Cincinnati almost burned down in 2001 because that was the, the World Trade Center year. So everybody remembers that. But one of my classmates chased a guy with 14 warrants down an alley at two o'clock in the morning. The guy put his hand in his waist. My part or my classmate pulled out his gun and shot him once in the chest and killed him. He didn't have a gun. So I mean. The, the way we're trained is I don't have to wait for you to shoot me. If I say there's a threat, then I can go ahead and deploy my, my gun I can or whatever's reasonable to arrest you. I can use whatever force is necessary. The Supreme Court has said that. So I guess I look at it like you're asking me to make a split second decision at two o'clock in the morning when it's 10 degrees out and I've had four hours of sleep and I've got to let, make a life and death decision. I don't think anybody would say, hey, if I made a mistake, it was a mistake of the heart, not a mistake of the mind. I wasn't trying to hurt this individual. So I think we've got to have a little bit of you got to cut people some slack when you're asking them to do that. And the other thing you got to remember with gunfights and and, and law enforcement, the average gunfight lasts two and a half seconds, takes place in about 10 to 12 feet. So it's over before it starts. So this, you know, you know, it's like, bang, it's over. That, that's just the way it is. So it's not something like, oh, let me think. Okay, I think I'm gonna, you know, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't happen the way it is. So I guess I would caution, and I'll shut up here <laughs> in a minute. But I'll, <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll caution people to say, be careful what you hear, what you see in the media, because it's not always true. And I learned that sort of the hard way. I, I was a sergeant uh, at the end of my career. And I, I was involved in an incident where I w- was there during the night. I came home at seven o'clock in the morning. My wife had the news on and my wife was like, were you there? I said, I was. And I'm watching it. I'm like, that that didn't happen. The, the way the news media was saying it happened, that didn't happen. I was there. I know how it happened. But they're reporting something that didn't happen. So I'm like, just be real careful what you hear in the media. Yeah, I think we can all agree. On that one, man, the media. Sorry, is, I didn't mean to go off like that. No, no, it's great. Thank you. So, yeah, that that makes sense to me. Um, what do you think explains this? Um, so, I guess as we watch the second question around the the thin blue line concept or the the yeah. communication, what I inferred from from your answer is that maybe in these situations, the officers feel like they 
followed the correct protocol. And now they're with the scrutiny of the outside, they're, they're not being protected. They're not being uh, supported by the superiors who made the rules of engagement, perhaps. Yeah. I, and I think that's exactly it. I, I, I'll never forget. I was a new sergeant and I had our captain. He came to me and this wasn't even my report. It was a report where the somebody called 911 and says there there's a black female sitting on of uh, the trunk of a vehicle. This is what she's wearing. And she's waving a gun around. That was that was what somebody called in. So the officers go there. They take cover behind something that'll stop a bullet. And they order her to the ground and to drop the gun. Now, they, they don't see the gun. She doesn't have the gun at the time. But, you know, here's the car. The car matches the description. Here's the woman. She matches the description of what was called in. So, okay, get on the ground and do that. She won't get on the ground. She won't, she won't get off the car. So they tase her. And she goes down. They get her into custody, find the gun. Uh, she, she's a felon. She's not allowed to have a weapon. So she ends up getting arrested. And so the captain's to me, he comes to me and he's like, well, why? Why, why didn't they just walk up on her? And I, I said, Captain, it was a gun run. I said, I've been to four police funerals so far. I'd prefer not to go to three more. You know, I, I mean, why wouldn't you take cover and order her down so that you have the advantage? Why would you walk up on somebody with a gun? And he's like, well, I, I don't think they should have tased her. And And that to me was like, unfortunately, somebody who hasn't been on the street for a long time. It's like, well, you train them this way. This was a great thing they did. They, she didn't get hurt. They didn't walk up on her. She didn't have a chance to use the gun. They didn't have to retaliate and kill her. This was this was a great way of handling it. So, yes, I, I mean, part of it is, Captain, do you understand what you're saying? And, and I, I don't think he did. So I was kind of like, wow, you know, really? This is the guy who, when I write the report as a sergeant, it goes to my lieutenant, and then it goes to him. And he's like, no, you shouldn't have done that. But I was trained to do that. Why, why shouldn't I have done that? I think you have to, you know, if you get into law enforcement, you got to have a, a ton of integrity. You got to, you got to be like, you know what? Yeah, I want to arrest that guy, but I don't have probable cause to do it. I don't have probable cause to stop that car, and so I can't do it. And we don't. And I know my partner and I did that. It's like we we watched a hand to hand drug deal, or at least what we thought was, and we wanted to stop the car, but the guy didn't commit a traffic violation for us to stop it. So it's like, well, you get away today. So. I don't know what the answer is. I think you have to have integrity and say, but I've also would say I've seen cops that shouldn't be cops. You know, it's like you're in the wrong job. You're, you're not cut out to do this. You don't treat people right. Those cops usually end up getting weeded out eventually. It's like, you know, I don't want to work with you. I don't want, they get a reputation. Nobody wants to work with them. And then they do something stupid. And it's like, you violated our procedure and, and, and you're gone. We're, you know, we're taking your gun and your badge. So it, it comes down to the person. You know, if you're raised right and you do the right thing, you're going to make mistakes. But just tell the truth. It, 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 you know, I'm not smart enough to, to understand all the lies that I, you know, could conjure up. So I'd just be better off telling the truth. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, man. And just like you said, too, I think it's really important to come to this conversation with trying to understand because... I guess for me, the the reason I asked too is it, it it what makes me really angry about it is just that like it's such a, a fertile ground for a bully, right? For someone who yes. yep. who 
wants to abuse other, not wants to abuse other, but takes advantage of their position and uses it to abuse others. And yeah, it's, it's like, uh, I, th- yeah. So thank you for explaining that. And I think that it's such a, it's such a tough topic. And, you know, I think some, there are a lot of people who, you know, I'm sure would want to go deeper on that, but I'll, I'll keep it moving towards still in the same realm, but, um, this, your perspective on what we should do about drug drugs, because a lot of these, these examples you gave, the whole point was to remove the drugs or to get drugs from the community. And, you know, now again, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, the whole Reagan's war on drugs has been declared a failure, right? It's, it's drugs aren't going away. And my perspective would be that just like many other addictions, just like lying and humans are messy and, and we know that drug addiction isn't going to go away. So after working in your, you know, in your career to uh, enforce drug law, what's your perspective on that drug law, you know, these days? Yeah. I, let me just go back to what we were talking about, because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you, if you have a perspective about the police, the, most police departments have a couple of things. One, a citizen's police academy, where it's like you go one night a week for like eight weeks and they'll put you through a mini academy. Here's what we learn. Here's how we do what we do. And here's why we do it. So educate yourself about how the cops are trained before you're willing to say, oh, that's a bad cop. Well, was he or was she? So do that. And two, most police departments will let you do a ride along. You know, you can get in a car with a police officer and go ride a shift and see what he or she experienced, see the things that you probably don't want to see, but will help you to make a more informed decision. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. Drugs, yeah. Um, I, I don't know what you're going to do about drugs. I, I mean, drugs have been around since, you know, before Jesus was walking on the face of the earth. So I don't think that it's ever anything that you're going to stop. I mean, it's, it's just like alcohol. You know, I mean, we, you know, prohibition was outlawed in the United States for a while. Everybody, what happened? Everybody bootlegged booze in from Canada where it was legal and things like this. So you're not, you're not going to get rid of it. And, and I, I mean, I live in Colorado. I mean, we, you know, we had, we have marijuana that, you know, you can walk into stores, dispensaries and buy a couple years ago, we approved people to have mushrooms, you know, psychedelics that, you know, kind of give you a, you know, a trip of that's that purple dragon isn't really here with us, but that's what you see. And, and, and I, I look at that and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to put those things in my body if I don't have to, but I understand some people do. And, and, and I guess that's fine. But I also feel if you want to do that, then there needs to be consequences. If you do that to excess and you drive a car or, you know, you commit a crime. I have a very good high school friend of mine whose stepdaughter is an addict in California and, and, she has told her friends, here's where my mom and dad live, break into their house and steal their stuff so we can go score some drugs. You know, if that's the case, then you've got to be held accountable. And I, I did a podcast, interestingly, with two cadets from the United States Air Force Academy, and they were asking me about this topic. And they said, you know, are there programs out there to help people that are on drugs and things like that? And I said, yes, there's, there's a lot of programs out there, all different kinds, all different levels. I said, but the problem with those programs is they don't work until the person hits rock bottom. And the problem with that is 
there's a very thin line between rock bottom and dead. So, I mean, I've seen people, I've arrested thousands of people, you know, for drugs, for selling drugs and things like that. And it, it you're not making a dent. I mean, I've, I've been trained by DEA agents who have said, you know, yes, the government talks about getting rid of drugs, but from our perspective, drugs are too important to the economy. I mean, between the helicopters that people use to all the different equipment that we use to, you know, it's the government really doesn't have a lot of interest in getting rid of drugs. So I don't know what the solution is, but I think, you know, if you want to do it, that's fine. But you also need to be held accountable for your consequences. For sure. I like that too, what you said about like the <clears throat> doing a ride along, for example. I think that's great. You know, like, yeah, if people want to have a really strong perspective, do some primary research. Um, okay. So the other in your, in your memoir, there was a really a core tenet was your faith. And that seems to be something that has stayed with you throughout your life and has been a, a source of um, shelter and, you know, psychological safety and also uh, a, a, a source of strength. So, yeah, what what I would say is the role of faith in your life as well, because on my audience, you know, I don't think I've ever talked about, you know, to someone who was willing to share that and talk about that. So I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I I, I like you have grown up Roman Catholic and you know was an altar boy and and all that kind of stuff, and certainly the Catholic Church, you know, has been beaten up for, you know, all the police, uh, priest abuse, uh, sex scandals and things like that. And should be, I, I mean, there were, there were a lot of people that knew about things that, you know, and didn't do anything about it. It's like, I'll, I'll transfer you to somewhere else or I'll, I'll move you or I'll, you know, you just go over here and stay by yourself and more things should have been done. Absolutely. For those victims. I, I feel for them. It, it never happened to me and I, I was lucky, but you know, it certainly happened to thousands of, of young boys and, and young girls, and, and that's that's horrible. That being said, I, I think I go back to my comments earlier about, you know, who do you blame? Do you blame God? I don't blame God for my cancer. I don't blame God because these priests, you know, abused young people. Was it wrong? Absolutely. Totally wrong. But I don't think God had anything to do with it. I mean, God gives us free will. God gives us free choice to make decisions. And, you know, kind of goes back to the story I told you at the Citadel. You know, for the first time in my life, I had to be an adult. I had to make a decision that nobody else was going to make for me. There was no safety net. Nobody was going to bail me out that was going to affect my life. And not only my life, but I'm sure, you know, my family's life and the people that I loved and cared about and that loved and cared about me. So I always talk about what's gotten me through cancer were my three Fs, faith, family, and friends. So I don't blame God for cancer, but I do believe that he or she or whatever that being is that you you know you call God, I I believe that person, that entity gave me the strength to get through this. And as I said, I, I can't believe that a God who formed us in his own image and likeness, that formed us out of love, you know, wants anything less than the best for us. But he's not like some supernatural thing that's just, you know, like Superman who kind of swoops in and makes all things better. He gives you a life and it's up to you how you want to live that life. And I want to live it to the best I can. I have made a ton of mistakes in my life. I don't have many regrets, but the regrets I have are the times where I was selfish 
and I hurt other people or other people were impacted by the bad decisions that I made. But I, I, I don't I don't know what to say other than it, it works for me. I, I, I remember when I had knee surgery one time and I, I was 14 years old. I was in the hospital. I, I, I was scared. I was hallucinating from a high fever and pain medication. And I called my mother at two o'clock in the morning and I'm like, mom, I, you know, and I'm crying and everything. And she's like, open the bedside table, take out the rosary and start saying the rosary. Whoa. Okay. I didn't even know there was a rosary there, mom. Way to go. You know? So, so she pulls, you know, I pull out the rosary and at two o'clock in the morning, I'm saying, you know, Hail Mary's. So it's worked for me. I know it doesn't work for a lot of people, but I, I just, we're, we're, we're not good enough alone. We need somebody to help us. And I think that kind, caring, loving God that isn't out there is right here. We just need to open ourselves up to him. I, you know, it was one of the stories I talked about in the book about Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel's, you know, surrounded by, you know, a, a tornado and an earthquake and all, you know, and he's looking for God's voice. And God's not in the tornado. God's not in the earthquake. Where is God? God's in a very small whisper. So given our society and how, you know, we're going 900 miles an hour with our hair on fire, if God was trying to talk to us, would we be able to listen to him? Yeah. Uh, when I read that passage of your book, I was thinking that, uh, <laughs> you know, Ezekiel was probably a little a little deaf from the uh, tornado and the earthquake. So maybe yeah, it <laughs> Louder than a whisper, <laughs> but anyway, semantics. Yeah, you'll thank. Yeah, thank you. And I'm I'm so happy that you have that faith and that that rock, man. Because I think that we all need that. You know, we all need that thing that gives us security in in some way. And and you know, it's also community, right? It's also a place to yeah. go. Have you been able to return uh, to to your services in person? I have not. I, 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 I go to mass every day on my iPad uh, and, and do it that way. And, and I, it's not the same, but it's kind of where I am right now with mm-hmm. being in a wheelchair and with COVID and things like that. So, no, I haven't. But it's definitely something that, you know, I, I, I stay close to. I, and, I, and I pray every day for about an hour. And I, I've met so many people during this 10-year cancer journey that, yeah, I certainly pray for myself. I, I pray for that miracle that, you know, I hope comes, but I pray for so many other people that have asked me to pray for them. And and when I tell people, you know, I'll pray for you, that, that's not a, oh yeah, that's what, you know, it's kind of, he's just saying that. I, I do. I, I do pray for those people. And I hope in the same way they would pray for me as well. Totally. Well, I really hope you can get back uh, before too long and, and, you know, get to be uh, in, in that sacred space. Um, awesome. The other thing I wanted to, to ask you about was an example of, I think the guy's name was the, the alias you used was a Greg in the book, or it was a a friend of your wife's, I believe, who was very successful in business and then had a divorce, ended up getting remarried, but uh, I believe eventually, uh, completed his own suicide. And I think that also with your passion for law enforcement, you, you found a path that where you got up every day excited to go to work and you, you liked your work. And the thing that, another thing that kind of fires me up is this idea that how many people have accepted that, oh, everyone hates their job. 
when I hear that, I get viscerally angry. I'm like, why? I understand why. I understand life circumstances, you know, and that we have to take jobs. We need to support ourselves and live. But that mentality of just accepting that this is the only way, the only way to be successful, air quote successful, is to pursue a super high paying job where you sacrifice family time. And yeah, so that, I, that really resonated with me too when you were talking about that story. And I think that's a really great message too to get out there about you don't have to follow just one set path and you don't need to chase money. No, there, there's a there's a great story that I heard years ago about Alexander the Great, you know, probably the biggest megalomaniac ever. You know, I mean, everybody talks about Hitler. I think Alexander the Great was probably worse than Hitler. But the story goes that as Alexander the Great is dying, he calls his counselors together and he asks them to carry out his final three wishes. And, and the first wish is that only his doctors, his physicians carry his coffin to the grave. The second wish is that the road to the cemetery is strewn with gold and silver and precious stones. And the third one is that his hands are left hanging outside his coffin. And one of his counselors is like, you know, I mean, hey, you're Alexander the Great. You've conquered, you know, the entire known world. These are your final three wishes. These seem kind of kind of lame, for lack of a better word. And Alexander says, well, the first wish, I want my doctors to carry my casket to the grave, my coffin to the grave, is because I want people to realize that, you know, no doctor heals anybody. They just assist the body in healing itself. And people need to be responsible for how they treat their body and not think that, well, I can abuse it and I'm going to go to a doctor and a doctor is going to heal me. So that was the first the first wish. The second one, and, and I think this is what you were just talking about. You know, he said, hey, I've spent my entire life accumulating wealth and power and riches and influence, and yet none of that is going with me beyond the grave. You know, I'm going to occupy the same small space as the pauper who's buried next to me. So I want people to understand that chasing riches and power is just sheer folly. And then finally, he said, you know, with the hands hanging out of his, his coffin, he said, I want people to understand that I came into this world empty handed and I pretty much leave it exactly the same way. So you're right. I mean, we all want to be successful, you know, but it's all how you define success. And I really think that our purpose in life, regardless of what you decide to do. And, and maybe I should back up. Your purpose doesn't have to be your job. As you said, you know, your job could be something over here that, you know, you, you use to pay the bills, but your purpose or your passion is to write or to volunteer or to play music or to be an activist or whatever you feel in your heart it is. So I, I think it's important for all of us to realize that, that it doesn't have to be your job. And we want it to be our job. We want it to be, you know, I can't wait to get up and I'm going to make a lot of money. But I've found that, you know, money, power, influence, they're pretty much overrated. I think we're put on this earth to serve. And if we serve other people, especially when we get into those dark places where we're all looking, you know, I'm down, I'm depressed. What are we doing? We're looking inside. How's the best way to get out of that? Start looking outside and you do that by helping other people. Beautifully said. Awesome, Terry. Well, I've, uh, we'll, we'll switch over to three things again, but one thing, last question I wanted to ask, um, your book is your memoir is filled with quotes and references to historical figures. And I got the impression that you read a lot. So do you have any, uh, any book recommendations that you would, you would recommend that we, we check out? I do. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I, I love biographies or autobiographies. I, I mean, I love David McAuliffe stuff. I've read, you know, one on John Adams, one on Harry Truman. It's, I, I, you know, I, I love that stuff. I want to understand what make people tick. You know, why did you do what you did kind of thing. But a book that I read late last year was a book called Legacy. 
And you, you'll love this because you're, you're a big rugby guy. So Legacy uh, is written by a man by the name of James Kerr, and it's about the New Zealand national rugby team, who by most accounts is the most successful sports franchise in any sport in any country of all times. And the thing that I found interesting about them was you would think when they're bringing somebody onto their team that they would hire for technical competence, for, you know, you're a great whatever. And I don't know anything about rugby, so I'm not going to say, I'm not going to try to pretend that I do. But whatever position you're recruiting for, you're going to recruit the best person in that position. But that's not what they hire for. They hire for two things. Number one is character. What kind of person are you? You know, how do you treat your wife and kids? How do you treat the janitor? You know, do you kick the dog? I mean, what kind of an individual are you? And then number two, they hire for humility. I don't have all the answers. I mean, think about what, how much stress do we put on ourselves when we go into a job interview? Because we're going to go into a job interview and I better have the answers to all these questions they're going to ask me. And the way the, the New Zealand national rugby team, they're called the all blacks because of their uniforms. The way they look at it is, I don't expect you to have all the answers. You individually won't have all the answers. But us collectively as a team, we'll figure out the answer. And I think, if, you know, I, I think about all the job interviews I had, and it's like, boy, I better know the answers to these questions. And what they're saying, the most successful sports team of his, in history is saying, you don't have to have all the answers. As a team, we'll come together and figure out the answers. So I would definitely recommend Legacy to to anybody, and again, anything David McCullough writes, I love. So I'd recommend any of his books as well. Nice. Thanks, man. I'll check that out. Sure. Okay. Moving on over, three things game time. Uh, so yeah. whoever's birthday is sooner goes first. Uh, so what uh, month is your birthday in, Terry? July. July. Okay. I'm August. Oh, All sure right. you are. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's your question. <laughs> Okay. What are three things that I've learned about leadership? Um, one, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I, I don't know everything. Uh, I, I've hated, I, and I've been in this, I've been in meetings where, you know, there's been a problem. Everybody gets around a conference table. The boss walks in, sits down and says, here's the problem. Here's what I think we should do about it. All right, let's go around the table and talk about it. Now, what is everybody going to do? Wait a minute. The boss just said how he wants to handle this. So nobody's going to, you know, we're just going to echo what he said. A better way to do that in terms of leadership, boss comes in, sits down, says what the problem is, and then shuts up and says, all right, how do we handle this? And let everybody else, hey, I think we should do this. I think you're going to have a much better dialogue that way. So you don't have to have all the answers, I'd say, would be one. Number two, I think it's important to hire good people and then get the heck out of their way. You know, so we hear a lot about you got to lead from the front. I'm not so sure you do. I think you got to lead from the back. And that is, you know, what's in the back of an army? That's where all the support stuff is. That's where all the, the food, the ammunition, all that. Hey, you need ammunition? Boom. I'm the leader. I'll bring it up front. Here it is. You need food? Here, I'll bring it up front. Here it is. So I would say leading from the back is just as important as leading from the front. And I guess number three is you got to care about your people. It's not about you. You, you got to love your people. You got to know what they're doing because what motivates one person is not going to motivate another person. Some people, I learned this from, as a basketball coach. Sometimes I needed to yell at, at certain kids, and that got them motivated. Other kids, if I yelled at them, they just shut down. Other kids, all I had to do was look at them, and, and they were going to be harder than the, on themselves than I was going to be on myself, So, or than I was going to be on them. So I, I'd say those three things are what I've learned about leadership. Awesome, man. Wonderful answer. Nice one, Terry. 
Okay. Here's my question. What are three things I've learned about listening? Okay. Uh, number one, I would say is that I've immediately identified as a kid even that I love reading, but I can learn so much in a quicker fashion, uh, more quickly through a conversation than through reading. Exactly what we're doing right now. You know, it is wonderful. It's, it's a, such an easy way to learn about other people, other perspectives and other life experiences. Um, number two, I've learned that it's okay to excuse oneself from a conversation or from a situation if I don't have the emotional energy to listen properly, right? Like you, you made a distinction between, you know, true or active listening and understanding compared to just service level listening. It takes energy. What we're doing takes focus and time and attention. And, you know, if, if I need to go chill out and recover and, and recoup my energy, then I can do that. Uh, I think that's kind of like a, something that I don't know if you, you seem like a uh, extrovert also. Um, <laughs> so maybe sometimes there are times where it's okay for us to not <laughs> listen and we can just go elsewhere. And then number three, I think through this game actually, and through this podcast, something I've learned it's really powerful to repeat back what you hear from people. You know, you recapped your own, so I didn't, but I usually would, would show whoever I'm playing the three things game with, you know, talk back and, and, and did I understand that? You know, this is what I heard. And actually, in a, I've, I've used that in relationship with my relationship with my girlfriend too. When we're in a conflict or discussing something kind of uh, spicy, you know, I'll say, uh, <laughs> this is what I heard. Did, did I get that? Is there anything else to add? So, yeah, wonderful. I like it. <laughs> Cool, Terry. Well, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. Where can the listeners who are interested to read your uh, read your book, where can they find it? So the book is pretty much available anywhere you can find a book online. It's available at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks. It's in ebook, paperback, and hardcover. Um, and it's also, I, I have a, a, a website called Motivational Check, where I put up a new thought for the day every day. And with that comes kind of a question maybe to, for you to think about how you could use that thought in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which is usually a video or a story that's a little bit longer. But motivationalcheck.com will get you to me. And it also, you can get the link uh, to Amazon to buy the book there as well. Awesome. Cool, Terry. Well, thank you so much. And best of luck with your, your treatment and your recovery. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time and energy and, and sharing everything you did. It was, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it as well. For sure. Mm-hmm.